Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. The date is January 22nd, 2018. And this is episode number 13, Do You Hear What I Hear? Public Alerting in Canada, Past, Present, and Future. In this episode, we'll be taking a look back on the foundational moments of public alerting in Canada. And we're going to ask, what are the elements of a successful public alert message? And how do you know if you've done it right? To this end, we will be speaking with Tim Tritton, a well-known authority on the topic. And we'll also be discussing some recent articles, some tips, tricks, and tools of the trade. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Public alerting has got to be one of the oldest disaster management practices in existence, Uh, from church bells to air raid sirens to the beacons of Gondor. (laughs) uh, Communicating in times of crisis has always been and will always be critical. But it's 2018 now, and public alerting has evolved significantly. So here to tell us about how it's evolved is Tim Tritton with the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. But before we begin, uh, this is an area rife with abbreviations, which will require... Acronym analysis. That's right. It's time to get out the decoder ring because there are quite a few. Well, I think we know the first one, AEMA. We've mentioned them quite a few times, the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. Uh, AEA is Alberta Emergency Alerts. And the CRTC, of course, is the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission. Uh, NADS, N-A-A-D-S, is the National Alert Aggregation and Dissemination System. IPAWS, the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System, that's used down in FEMA. Uh, EPWS, the Emergency Public Warning System. And an Amber Alert, which is an alert specific to a child abduction or the abduction of a disabled adult where harm is imminent. So without any further ado, please enjoy this epic interview with Tim Tritton, recorded December 8th, 2017, via phone. Hello, my name is Tim Tritton. I'm the Alberta Emergency Management Agency, a team lead for the Alberta Emergency Alert Program. Tim, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm wondering if you can just take us through some of the the history of of public alerting and emergency alerting uh, in Alberta, at least, maybe touching on some of the focusing events that got it going and then the various forms that it's taken. Sure. Yeah, Alberta is uh, has the longest history of public alerting in in Canada and probably in North America. If I look back, really, what happened is on Friday, July thirty first, of nineteen eighty seven, the Edmonton experienced a tornado with I think there was twenty seven fatalities and about two hundred fifty three injuries. That spurred a real interest in public alerting, um, which I. Took, it took till 1992 to, to develop into an alerting system. Uh, in 92, Albert introduced the emergency public warning system. And we've been in continuous operation since then. So about 25 years that Alberta has had some side kind of public alerting system available uh, on a provincial scale, which makes us a long running package in terms of uh, public safety and public notification. The basic foundation there was that the users had to be involved the community had to be involved to make sure the message the message was delivered quickly if you think about it uh, alerting is a little bit different than other forms of communication and that speed is of the essence uh, and being founded in an event like a tornado 
it's not like a slow moving emergency uh, in which like a flood where you see the river build up over time with a, a tornado as your foundational moment. You, you learn that speed is important, being able to get a message out that is maybe not 100 percent correct, but it's out. It's, it's best available information and it's out in a timely manner. So the EPWS, or Emergency Public Warning System, was really the, the first start of that. And there was a lot of features that were innovative for a time. And, uh, you know, a lot of things came and grew. You know, I talk a lot more about sort of that history if you're interested. Sure, that would be great. I'm, I'm interested in the, the successes yeah. along the way as well as some of the challenges and growing pains. Well, I mean, the big success with it was the fact that they could get messages out and we could get an alert out to the public. But the EPWS system used a, an interactive voice response system to record a message. So imagine it's uh, uh, late, you're under stress, there's a wildfire or some event, that, and you've got to record your voice uh, and a message which delivers notification to people around you what's going on. You can see automatically that the stress causes people's voice to rise, uh, there's background noise, or maybe communications issues associated with using a, a phone. You know, in those days, a cell phone was still not a, a new piece of technology or still not a real strong piece of technology. So we had these kind of voice quality issues. Um, but in 2000, you know, 2000, that was the best that was available. In 2002, one of the things that EPWS did, though, was expand to start to include the Amber Alert program so that you were getting messages about the children out. In 2009, um, the process, the government started the process uh, to redesign EPWS to become digital, more channels, more delivery mechanisms, and being able to get the message out in a better using expanding technology. If you think about it, the system had been running for basically um, since 92, so about 17 years already. So there's a fair bit of knowledge gathered, but technology moves on. I mean, if you think where we were in 1995 or 1992 compared to where we were in 2000, the term Facebook didn't exist in 1992, for example. So in, as I say, in 2009, they begin to do the redesign work with the new system going live, what we call now Alberta Emergency Alert or AEA, going live in 2011 with its first tornado alert being issued on July 7th. So it's, it's interesting, you know, that the work that started this in, in 87 was a tornado and the work that then pushed it forward into the next level was again a tornado. It's... Um, one of the, the realities of the, the Prairie Provinces is we see these kind of events. So one of the things that the new AEA system included was a text-to-speech function. In other words, you type in the message and uh, it would be automatically machine-read. The new system also included alternative ways to start to get the message out to the people. Rather than just relying on the conventional radio and TV you saw it move into RSS feeds, social media, a standalone website, uh, www.emergencyalert.alberta.ca. So all these things came about in 2011, and we continue to grow and expand ever since then. Uh, the main, I think, principle here is that emergency alerts should be accessible to the public 
via one or more of the communication channel they choose. There's no one right way to get an emergency alert out. You have to go where the people are and reach the vast majority of the population uh, in the way that they work. You know, it's it's something about uh, emergency alerting in that you have to go where the people are. If the, the people are in in social media space, then that's where emergency alerting should be. If people are on Facebook and Twitter, that's where we are. If people are on websites, that's where we have to be. The the basic premise there is no one left behind. We get the message out to people as quickly as we can, to everybody we can. So as a result, Alberta has been a national and international allergen leader in emergency public alerting uh, based just on experience. We simply do it enough that you get good at it over time. Do people react differently to the different channels that you use? Uh, yeah, there's there's certain universal truths that, you know, coming out of the emergency alerting literature. And that is that when an alert goes out, people will seek verification, at least usually two other sources before they act on the information. And that's one of the things that makes alerting different from, from communication in general is that alert identifies the threat, the time, and the action that people need to take to, to keep themselves safe. Whereas other forms of communication, it's simply talking. You know, there's, there's an exchange of ideas or information. Alerting is really around direction, threat and direction. Here's what you need to do to keep you and your family safe. Um, and that, because you're, you're, it's a call to action. It's, it's immediate. There's a, there's a strong call to action. Uh, people have a tendency to want to say, you know what? I need to verify that. So if they get an alert on the radio or TV, the first thing they're going to do is they're probably going to look outside. They're going to check are they, are their neighbors leaving the area, that kind of thing. So that's that's pretty normal behavior. So it's important that you reinforce the alert by using as many communication channels as possible. What goes into crafting a proper alerting message to motivate that protective action? You you really, um, Grayson, you really need to make sure that you clearly identify the threat. What what's the event, right? Um, what is the uh, Urgency, does it in the CAP, Common Alerting Protocol, they uh, talk about uh, urgency, severity, and certainty. You know, what is the threat? How urgent is it that you you take action? Is this going to happen now? Is it happening right now? Is Or is it a slow-moving flood that will hit you in a day? Uh, the certainty, is this something you think is going to happen, or is this something that, you know, the fire is on your front doorstep? And... Um, so certainly urgency, severity, and severity. Is it really, really bad, or is it something that is, you know, there's a potential for? And Alberta recognizes that because we have two different types of alert. We have informational alerts, which are be prepared that something as bad as may happen. Um, over October, September and October, with the, the wildfires we we're experiencing this year, you'd send out informational alerts telling people, prepare to evacuate. There's a fire in your area. It's moving rapidly. It could hit your community. We want it. We're giving you kind of an advance notice. The second type of alerts that Albert issues are what we call criticals. The criticals are broadcast immediate. These are something which are very certain. Um, they're happening. We need people to take immediate action. So one message may say, oh, 
there's a fire heading towards your community. Another one says, evacuate immediately. The community is at risk and you're in danger. So you have those two types of alerts. So it's really important that you convey those things like urgency, severity, and certainty, and event type so that people know what there's what the situation is, and then you give them clear direction in terms of what they should do. Instructions are really important, and that to me is the thing that differentiates um, an event, an unexpected event from an emergency and emergency alerting. I'll give you a case in point. Piece of space junk is gonna is coming down. Do you issue an emergency alert when you know that this piece of space junk is coming down? Well, first of all, where is it going to land? When is it going to land? All those criteria, how big is it going to be? All those criteria have to be have to be met. I would personally probably not issue an alert for something like space junk because what is the life saving instruction that you can give to people? What do you say? Look up. You know, there's just no. There's no really strong life-saving instruction there that you can give. You have to be able to identify the threat and give specific instructions that can keep people safe. If you can't do that, then really what you've done is just advise them of the situation. And I suppose that goes back to the difference between the alerting function and the, the communication function. Yeah, ver- yeah, very much. I mean, a communication is, is about getting information out to the public, but it need not contain a direction. Uh, one of the things you'll see frequently in alerting is um, you must evacuate the area now, immediately, right? Normally in the communication, you'd say, well, please consider evacuation or go to, you know, we don't do that. We tell you what the situation is, and we we try to tell you through the AA program what you need to do to keep you, you and your family safe. So I know a lot of the uh, channels that you use, you use a wide variety of channels. Do you have any information on who and what demographic pays attention to which channels and which channels actually motivate uh, the most action? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is is no, we don't, uh, simply because we try to reach the entire population. Um, back to the principle of no one left behind, right? So, you know, for example, we are, the bread and butter, the, the, the start of emergency alerting in, in uh, Alberta was radio and TV. Well, we now have 147 broadcasters participating in the program. We expanded to the website because first thing we learned is people want to go and get more information. And that website I told you about, emergencyalert.alberta.ca, uh, last year received 160, so far this year has received 106 million hits. It becomes that single source of truth that people can go to to, to get more information and, uh, and be accurate. We've expanded, as I told you, into social media, Facebook and Twitter, and we have about 224,000 followers. Part of the rationale there is that we keep it limited to uh, emergency events. So if you're hearing from Alberta Emergency Alert, it's because there's a, an emergency and it's something you need to know. We uh, About three years ago, we moved into an app, uh, a smartphone app. That's uh, the space that people are in a, incorporating into and we now have about 193,000 followers or users on the app um we we don't count downloads that because people have the app take it off but right now we know we have about 183,000 users so there's really good market penetration now those are all technology based if you're driving in your car and you don't have your radio on what do you do 
Well, for Amber Alerts, we have road signs. We've, we're hooked up to the to the uh, municipal and, and uh, provincial road signs, 511. We've also partnered with some of the um, the billboard companies, the electronic billboard companies. Part of this is getting stakeholder involvement. You go where the people are, right? And um, the billboards, the, the electronic digital signs that you see on the side of the road are a very powerful way to reach people. We've also reached out to uh, strategic partners across the board. For example, if you wanted to to uh, get an amber alert out and get the best information possible, working with the Alberta Sand and Gravel Association is a great way to get to the truckers, the people driving truck, because they're on the road. They've got they can be your eyes and ears. Uh, one of the things that Alberta has done, which I think is really innovative, is that we've partnered with Amateur Radio. So the oldest form of sort of mass communications in, in terms of uh, radio technology and AEA are working together. So we transmit alerts along that signal. Again, you know, you, you have to be looking to where the people are. And that's the easy way to do it. That's really cool that, that you've engaged some maybe untraditional uh, partners in, in spreading the word. How does the uh, Alberta Emergency Public Alerting System compare to other provinces? Well, there's... In all the other jurisdictions except Alberta, they use what's called the National Alert Aggregation and Dissemination System, or NADS for short, and um, the NADS system. And that's, uh, it really got into operation in 2011. And so it's still growing, it's developing, it's certainly getting there. But alerting involves three components. It involves issuance, distribution, and reception. So somebody has to issue the alert, and that's still a work in progress for many of the jurisdictions across Canada as they try to figure out exactly what an alerting system will be to issue an alert. Who should issue? I mean, Alberta's adopted a, what we call a decentralized model. We have about 850 users in 400 communities who can issue an alert for themselves and, their, and the communities they touch, um, and they have full access to the system. Other provinces are looking at a centralized model. If you want to issue an alert, you have to call into a central source. That very much is like the IPAWS or Integrated Public Alert Warning System the Americans use, in which uh, they, they've centralized that. It's a very powerful tool. You think you're reaching people on social media, on the radio, TV, that kind of thing. Um, so they want to make sure there's very tight control. Now, there's always a trade-off, and I, I tell people you can have it cheap, fast, or good. You can only have two out of three. Take the, the two you want. Uh, alert is about being fast, and um, sometimes you, because you have decentralized, you have different user quality. you got to keep in mind that in an in a, a average year, you know, we're looking around 70 or so alerts that go out, both informational and criticals. So far this year, for example, we've issued 16 alerts that were broadcast immediate or critical that went to radio and TV. And of those, nine were wildfire, six were tornado, and uh, one was an amber alert. So you do, this is a, a system you don't use a lot, right? Uh, so having a centralized versus a decentralized issuance system has trade-offs depending on how you want to go. Other jurisdictions, as I said, in cross Canada, they're still working through some of those things, uh, trying to get that up. Saskatchewan 
has pretty much adopted the Alberta model in terms of what they're doing. However, they're using the the NADS platform, which is uh, hosted by Telmorix, the Weather Network, or Metro Media, um, and they they're the alert aggregators. So you sign on to them. You use their uh, distribution channel, and they connect to the radio and TV stations. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you faced as this as, as this organization and system grows? Changing technology, alerting is about being agile. No one is afraid of, of the past, right? So we look back and say, "Well, that's uh, that was a great uh, that works great. That's where we should be." The trouble is that technology and people's appetites change pretty dramatically. So we've got to be constantly looking at the next phase, the next thing. Um, alerting has had, in it, I believe, four different phases or histories, uh, and each one has presented its own challenges. If you think of the first generation of alerts uh, were were sirens. You know, the, if you grew up in the 50s or you grew up in small town Alberta, everybody had a, every town had a siren. The trouble with that, it was indirect. There was no way to communicate instructions. It was basically a true warning system, which may or may not have any use. The second generation went to radio and TV. We were able to get more information out. This is, you know, as we move from EPWS to AEA in 2011, you see the growth of the TV channel. What we've seen now is the third generation, as people move away from TV, and become more online, you see the growth of the internet-based alerting systems with social media. Uh, I call the app 3.5 because it, it's taken that that internet-based system and moved it on to, to a smartphone. You know, the next generation will be wireless, which will be direct-to-consumer. So all those things have had challenges as you, technology changes rapidly and you have to be able to be agile enough and quick enough to, to sense that movement and be prepared for the next phase um, and that's difficult when you're talking about a, a system which is provincial or if you go out to the the NAD system national or the IPAWS you know uh, national as well so being agile being responsive understanding where the public is takes a lot of uh, a lot of innovation it takes a lot of time and you can't be afraid to fail and that's one of the things that uh, is hard for most organizations to accept. Sometimes you will not get it right, but it's better to try and maybe miss the mark, but get close than to say, I won't do anything until uh, I have it 100%, at least in my opinion. How do you know when an alert has been successful? And as, as we move to the more and more high tech, is there anyone that gets left behind? How do you How do you reach the most vulnerable? Yeah, there's. So the first question is, how do you know you've been successful? I guess on the the most crude measure is you you look at the number of injuries and deaths. You know, you look at the Gatlinburg fire in Tennessee in September, or the California wildfires that are unfortunately going on right now and have gone on for the last several months. I mean, you look at the death count there, and you know, did those people get the best quality of information? Did you try to get that information out? I mean, Gatlinburg, we saw, uh, you know, a, a number of dead there, and I, I forget the exact number. Uh, compare it to Fort McMurray, where eighty-eight thousand people were were evacuated with with basically no directly attributable deaths. 
So uh, that's one of the most powerful measures you have of whether or not the alerting system is actually working. Uh, you look at the Australian example where uh, they failed to issue an alert and uh, we saw a number of deaths on what they called Black Monday uh, simply because people didn't know and they didn't know the right actions to take. Uh, and that, you know, that's the kind of measures that ultimately you have to ask, is this a public safety system? Did it keep the public safe? So for the second part of my question there, uh, how do you make sure that you're reaching the most vulnerable populations, especially in this age of evolving technology? Yeah, I mean, the principle of no one left behind is really important. Uh, one of the things that we've been doing is looking at making sure that the app, for example, has has um, the capabilities to be used by those with, with various impairments. Uh, looking for distribution channels. We're going to be moving into the wireless space here in the next little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk, get a chance to talk about that. But um, how do we make sure that American Sign Language or French language is included in that so that you're reaching people using you know, their chosen communication platform in a way they'll understand? One of the basic things that, that goes people forget is crafting an alert message, which is simple, clear, concise, and complete. You know, SC3, right? That's the most important thing you can do. Simply taking the jargon out of a message, right? Uh, making sure that you talk, for example, when you talk about uh, bring, you know, boil all water, you don't say potable water because people don't know what that is. A clear message goes a long way. And that's, you know, you talk about the most vulnerable. We think of people with disabilities or language impairments of some sort uh, or different languages. It's more important that that message is, as they say, simple, clear, concise, and complete. So right back to the basics of uh, crisis comms. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with the uh, CRTC? Sure. There's a number of uh, initiatives. The CRTC has taken a look. It's responsible, of course, for for broadcasting and telecommunications in Canada, and it has jurisdiction for that. The Where we're heading next is, I said, there's four generations. The fourth generation that we're heading towards is what I believe is direct-to-consumer, and that will be uh, wireless public alerting. You won't have to download an app. If you have a cell phone, a smartphone, and on the LTE network that's that's properly set up, and it's within the area under threat, you'll immediately get what appears to be a text message. It's not, but it's a text message. With a accompanied by a tone, the Alberta, the Hong Kong, Kong the common alerting tone, and a 300-character message, which will tell you what's going on. Now, that'll come into play in April of 2018. That'll, the telcos are working uh, very hard to have that technology in place. Pelmorix is working on that. And to make that happen, Alberta has partnered with uh, Pelmorix and the and the MAD uh, system so that we can get our message out through through that channel as well. That's probably the major. I I think that's going to be as significant to alerting as the introduction of nine one one was. It gives us nearly instant eight to ten second communications with the vast majority of the Canadian public and Albertans in general. If you look at it, about 85% of the Canadian households have some kind of mobile phone service compared to 75% who have landlines. That means that you're reaching about 30 million subscribers in 2015. In Alberta, you're looking around 3.5 million smartphone owners. So you're going to be able to get them more quickly 
using their chosen communication device, which will be the smartphone, right? It's it's really critical that we be able to reach people where they are, and that's where they are now. So that's where we're going to be. So you talked a lot about the the best practices of crisis communication and how to form a good message. Are there any common detractors from public alerting? I'm thinking maybe like overuse or that sort of alerting fatigue or anything like that. Yeah, that's that's one of the the great myths. I believe there's a number of great myths, and that is that. Uh, if we alert, people will panic. That's one of them. Uh, if we issue too many alerts, we're going to run into a, what we would call alert fatigue or people, the cry wolf phenomena. Could you over alert? Yes, and definitely. And what that normally is around is what I call the the information items. Here, so here's a, here's a good example. Power is going to be out next Tuesday for two hours while we do repair. Is that alert worthy? What do you think? Probably not. I guess it, that makes sense that uh that's communication but not alerting exactly yeah that see any remember alerting is about a sudden unexpected danger right if you know this is going to happen next tuesday doesn't qualify an alert um so that's the kind of thing where you would you would use other communication channels that you know then you tell the power company or atco gas or whoever well that's fine you have many different ways to get that message out you have a whole period of time to to get that done so go ahead but don't use the alerting system to as your as your cheap and easy communication tool we want to make sure that when the common alerting signal or that honk 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 sound that people are so familiar with in alberta when they hear that they know that something important is happening to them now if you had one piece of advice to give to someone who is crafting their own message or using maybe, let, let's say, a smaller scale public alerting system for a facility or something like that, what would it be? Communicate. Talk. Let people know. I'll, remember I said that alerting has three parts, issues, distribution, and reception, right? The the Where we normally fall down, and there's a number of communities, I think there's seven communities that have their own private alerting system, is... There's a large public awareness campaign that starts off, and then pretty soon it dribbles off. And what happens there is that people aren't reminded of what's going on. There's not enough advertising and reinforcement of what the alerting system is. The collective memory is short, so you need to continually remind people of what you're doing and why and what that means when you have that tone. I don't think AEA, for example, has a has a huge following as a brand, AEA. But what does have a huge following is that tone. That people hear that tone and they know something means uh, there's a bad thing happening. So if you're working on a, a campus, for example, or a, or a, uh, a building or, or uh, institution of some sort, making sure that the staff continually hear that tone, they're practiced regularly, that they, they are, it's in their mind and they know what it means. Uh, too often we, we fire and forget. We launch something with great applause and then six months later we haven't done anything. And after two or three years, and remember alerts thankfully are unusual and rare events, right? When it finally gets used, we're surprised when people don't react well. Well, because we haven't reinforced the message, right? You really have to keep reinforcing the message. Uh, as much as issuance and distribution are important, the public still gets the message and must know what to do with the information. They must believe it. 
So that would be my that would be my major uh, selling point. Most people want to concentrate on technology, and I keep telling people that it's a process of people, process, technology in that order. Get the people involved. Get the process down. The technology then is a, is an enabler. It makes it happen. But it's too easy to buy technology, and so you concentrate on technology. Well, technology doesn't solve your problems. It's people, then a process, and then eventually the technology. I really like your quote there, the, the go where the people are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, walk out into an empty field and yell and say, well, there I've alerted the public. Well, no, he didn't. Tim Tritton, thank you so much for your time and thank you for agreeing to this uh, epic interview. On a personal note, I've definitely used the public alerting channels that you've been working on to great effect. uh, And I know that the work you're doing is saving lives. So thanks for that and thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Grayson. It was been fun. Well, that sounded like a great interview, Grayson. You guys had a really good conversation. Yeah, it was kind of a big interview as well with a lot of really important information so i think it's worth a recap or mm-hmm. an epic summary if you will. I like it yeah so first off tim really drove home the difference between normal communication uh, and a warning and public alerting so where as we all know communication is a two-way street uh, and warning systems are most concerned with disseminating all kinds of information public alerting is separate uh, and that's in that it's designed only to provide critical information and life-saving direction in the case of sudden and unexpected danger. So that was that that first major point that he made. Uh, He also talked about the three phases of an alert, uh, those being the issuing, distributing, and receiving, and how it's actually quite common to get stuck at the beginning in the issuing phase. Uh, For example, if you don't know who is allowed to create an alert or if you wait too long for approval. The crafting of the message was also important. Uh, there were some pro tips that he passed around there on making a simple, clear, complete, and concise, in some cases 300 characters or less, uh, message, which clearly identifies the threat type, the urgency, severity, and certainty, as well as clear life-saving directions to undertake within a closed time frame. So really, really important structure to the message uh, that can actually make a, a difference as to whether they're actionable. Mm-hmm. And finally, and maybe most importantly, uh, his quote, the one I really like, go where the people are. That, I think, is really what we're going to see here in 2018 as mobile public alerting becomes a Canadian reality. Yeah, and that's going to be really exciting. I mean, it's been a busy uh, week in the news, especially with uh, public alerting. The tsunami alerts that went out uh, just recently in B.C., as well as the recent um, uh, intercontinental missile alert that went out to Hawaii. So I think it's uh, uh prime time for the public and I think we've caught it uh, appropriately in the news cycle. Yeah and I think it's a really good time to think about what the the future of public alerting is for us and how we're going to craft that future which actually works really well into our journal club article. Yeah what is it? Yeah, so the document that I'm going to be reviewing is called Emergency Alert and Warning Systems, Current Knowledge and Future Research Directions. It is by the Computer Science and Telecommunications Board Division on Engineering and Physical Sciences at the National Academy of Science. Now, although this is a a bit of a U.S.-centric article, it has a lot of really useful information for public learning in general. Now, aside from covering some of the traditional research on public learning, which Tim Tritton did a really good job of covering, this article has three things that I really like. One, it talks about the conditions that will probably have to exist for the future of public alerting. 
Two, it presents a call for research that hasn't really been covered. And then three, and maybe most interestingly, it has this very specific vision of what public alerting might look like in the not too distant future. So those conditions that I was talking about, about for a integrated alert and, and warning system uh, include privacy. Mm -hmm. So preserving privacy is going to be a, a major factor in future alerting, especially as we reach into people's phones and, and influence people's lives in that way. Uh, and along with that comes this idea of increased autonomy. So traditionally, public learning systems are kind of inescapable. There's either an opt-in or an opt-out. And what's presented is this idea that things that need to be far more customizable. How we receive those alerts or how we view the information that we receive is going to be up to the user. In fact, the user is going to be far more involved, according to this article, than ever before. Uh, and I think that's an important part uh, as well. You know, really not just making it a, a one-way communication. Um, has there been any talk about how to close the loop, so to speak, with disaster alerting? Yeah, there is this sort of new idea about making public alerting a little bit more of a, a communication mechanism instead of just that one-way street. Um, and they, they address this in the article under this post-alert feedback and monitoring idea. So while it's not directly communicating, uh, it is paying attention to what they call the milling of, of people once they receive the public alerting. So where do they confirm the information? Who do they talk to and what do they do? And how can we get more information to them through those channels? Or how can we engage with them through those channels that we know they're going to use um, while still maintaining the integrity of public alerting? Interesting. Yeah, so the document then moves on to a call for research. So according to this document, there are four main areas in which research is desperately needed, that being message characteristics, so how different messaging uh, of different lengths and types can affect evacuation behavior or, or protective behavior, uh, accessibility, both in language and visual and even technological style, uh, geotargeting, so making sure that very specific locations receive a specific message based on maybe their particular vulnerabilities or exposure to a hazard. And then the last one is community engagement. So using new tools and technologies, uh, leveraging as many elements of the community as possible to get the message out to as many people as possible. The thing I like the most about this article, however, is definitely not research-based. <laughs> uh, it's their projected course for public alerting, a very sci-fi Skynet version of the future. So if you imagine uh, an earthquake, in their forecasted reality, there would be sensors that detect the earthquake, which we have now, which would automatically affect things like driverless cars or trains to change direction. Uh, it would send messages to smart houses to turn off the gas, electricity, send messages directly to different facilities, which would begin their evacuation procedures. So very integrated, technology-heavy vision of what public alerting is going to be. And I don't think they're that far off. So there you have it, a comprehensive look at the, the past, present, and future directions for public alerting uh, with a, just a little bit of sci-fi thrown in there as well. <laughs> right on. Well, let's get on to our tool of the trade. And as you probably guessed, it's going to be a emergency alerting tool this month. So I think we got some really epic tips and tricks from Tim. And if you're in Alberta, you probably already have the Alberta Emergency Alert app. Um, I know there's a similar apps in other provinces like Saskatchewan. But one tool that I think all emergency managers should be aware of is the 
EC Alert Me. This is Environment Canada's weather warning online email alert system, which is designed for emergency managers and other stakeholders. It's highly customizable, easy to use, and you can get your weather warnings in your inbox well before they hit the news. So to find out more, search EC Alert Me and follow the directions on the Environment Canada webpage. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. Uh, a big thanks to Tim Tritton for sharing his time and expertise with us on the past, present, and future of public alerting in Canada. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca. Send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast or visit our website at epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current, relevant, Canadian. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.